0: Announcement that I know of, uh, there was more, I think, Bryce, on Sunday, but I can't remember. Um, men's, prayer, men's, men's we may not have men, yeah, we're not going to have men's prayer breakfast on the 19th. That's when we're going to have a, uh, prep school teachers and parents meeting at nine o'clock. Eight o'clock for the deacons meeting, nine o'clock for prep school meeting for, uh, teachers and parents. And then, uh, I just heard the speakers come on did you not hear most of that or okay um trying to think I think that's that's the only thing I did I'm going to be gone on a Thursday night at the end very last Thursday of of um September and we'll have a special speaker for that Thursday night and that's Dr. Scott Stripling he was the he is the uh, dig director of the uh, excavation at Shiloh where we went on the Israel trip this last June and they have discovered just tremendous things there and then also he was involved about a month ago we had Aaron uh, Lipkin here and Aaron talked about the discovery of Joshua's altar and the discovery of the curse tablet there uh, and that was a result of the work that Scott was able to provide on going through all of the stuff that had come out of the dig uh, from 40 years ago. So that there, he's going to have some great things to say, and I know everybody's going to um, uh, really enjoy that. I think that's the only thing I can remember in terms of, of announcements. Okay, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. That means that in silent prayer, all we need to do is bow our heads and Uh, just as we think, tell God what we've done, and He knows exactly what our thoughts are. And so He will immediately forgive us of those sins, and restore us to fellowship with Him, and so we always need to begin with that to make sure we're uh, walking by the Spirit as we get into our study of God's Word uh, this evening. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's just a privilege that we have the ability to go through your word uh, the way we're doing it in this interlocked series and for all of the work that uh, Amos and Jan Kwok have done in putting this together based on what Charlie Clough did and uh, a few others. And Father, we're just thankful that um, that is being put into print because it's so important. Father, we're just uh, thankful too for the kids that we have in this congregation and for the opportunity to uh, teach them because they are the battlefield uh, for this next generation, for the future, and it is so important to, for our parents to train their children, their grandchildren, to think biblically. And um, the future that we see now, or the reality that we see now, and the future that is um, that is uh, in, that that's, seems to be the result of where we, this country has gone. Um, our children our grandchildren will not have the same experiences that we have had and things are around the world are being impacted in the same way and so it is so important because the world still needs missionaries and it still needs uh, pastors and still needs strong believers to stand firm for your word and to shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation so father we pray that as this teaching goes out that you would use that to really help parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, others teach your word faithfully. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are continuing in the interlock series. This is lesson three, part one, and there'll probably be only two parts in this lesson. It is not quite as detailed or as significant as the uh, really the previous two dealing with a number of things, although everything here is significant. The, actually the lesson's not quite as long to read, but there's going to be some corrections that I make on the way the, the lesson is written, and these are things that I have had, uh, very profitable discussions with Amos and Jen, um, about, um, because they've also developed a curriculum on the spiritual life based on what I've taught, and so they asked what I've. They sent all their material to me to critique it, and so we've worked through some things that uh, were not quite on target. So I'm part part of it, and it really hits in this lesson too. So that's uh, I've already sent these slides to them. Um, earlier this afternoon so that they could look at those uh, there's no conflict on it it's just there's confusion about a lot of these important things in terms of the makeup of human beings and what um, and the whole issue of what spiritual death means and what regeneration means and there's a, um, a man who has um, been uh, a bible student for most of his life and he's a little bit older than i am and he has been working on this problem of uh, investigating what different theologians say about and define regeneration. He's got about 350 pages on it, and it's amazing how few uh, theologians, and I'm talking about the guys that we would consider fairly decent, okay? that they don 't agree on this there 's just confusion, and a lot of it 's just based on some what I consider to be some inadequate exegesis but we 'll get into that so we 're going to look tonight at the beginning of this of this third lesson, which you can download from uh, the links that are there on the Dean Bible Ministry site. If you go back to lesson one barb 's got all the links in there, and you can just download those and I encourage you each week to read through these. These lessons, they've just done a marvelous job putting all of this uh, material together. And so we have seen the creation in the first lesson. We have seen the um, alternatives to God's, to the biblical view of creation, uh, the rise of paganism, and why in the second lesson, and that, of course, introduced us to the fall, and now the question is what happened as a result of the fall, what happened to the perfect world. But we're going to stand up, first of all, and we're going to work through our timeline and have everybody uh, remember your motions, your hand motions, and have get the blood stirring just a little bit so we can go go through this. These are the main events in the Bible, so... Uh, we go through this in probably about 15 or 20 seconds. I can't even see the second hand back there to uh, figure it out, but that's okay. I've got a counter on my on my slide that I just saw, so we'll wait about another five seconds before we get started. Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, call of Abraham. Then there's the uh, Ten Commandments. No, Exodus, that's right. I I was going backwards. I, I knew it was wrong. Okay, Exodus, Ten Commandments, and then there's the conquest. After the conquest, there's the kingdoms, and there's the split up into the northern and the southern kingdom, and then both kingdoms are ejected from the land by God, and then there's a partial return. Following that, there's a time when there's no revelation, and then the Messiah comes, and so Jesus is born, then he is crucified on the cross. He's buried. On the third day, he comes forth from the grave, rises from the dead. And then on the 40th day, he ascends to heaven. And then he sends the Holy Spirit, and it's the beginning of the church. And so the church age is the time in which we live, and it ends when Jesus Christ comes in the air and uh, raptures us to be with him uh, forever forever. And then at the end of the tribulation, he returns to the earth at the second coming, and he will establish his kingdom. And then at the end of the kingdom, there's the great white throne judgment. So you see, we did that in just about a minute. If I hadn't messed up, we'd have done it faster. That's pretty good. Okay, you can be seated. So this is what we're going through, is this timeline developing these coat hooks. We have the creation that we have talked about, where God created everything in six literal days. I saw a wonderful video yesterday that I would encourage you to uh, find. Uh, if you look for videos by Jason Lyle, L-I-S-L-E. Uh, Jason is, I think he just has his own ministry now, but he is um, a, a very solid creationist. He has his Ph.D. in astrophysics. Um, I believe it's from the University of Colorado. He's written a number of books. Uh, He's been very active in uh, speaking and writing about uh, creation science for at least, I think, the last 20, 20 years. And this was on astronomy, and it was a talk he gave at a Calvary Chapel and I can't remember where it was but it was recently if you get to the, if you just do a search on him on YouTube it'll probably be one of the first ones that came up and it was just like 2 months ago that this was uploaded so it it's based on some of the more recent discoveries um, with the various uh te- there's the Hubble telescope and what's the one that was just out there James Webb? what James Webb Yeah, the James Webb telescope and uh, fascinating and uh, how anyone who gives thought to how many systems there are in just, just physically of the universe can think that, and how they all interact and all the differences can either A, think that there's, um, it all happened by accident or B, that there's life anywhere other than the earth. It is so clear that God made the earth to be ha- inhabited. He didn't make other, other, uh, Planets to be inhabited, so there 's a big difference there, and so um, you know it's just very very good I, I just was amazed and it 's always impressive when we get into the details of god 's creation and we realize how how much there is there I mean just we think of the fact just just I was just thinking about our body today psalm one thirty nine says our bodies were fearfully and wonderfully made. And that doesn't mean you're going to be good looking and appealing and all of those other things, but you just think about the various systems you have that make up your body. You've got your cardiovascular system. You've got um, the respiratory system. You've got your digestive system. You've got your, all, all the neurology and everything, your nervous system. And those, and you know, when Darwin came up with his ideas on evolution, they didn't know a whole lot about these things. They thought the smallest thing related to biology was a cell, and now they're, they're, there's so many components that are submolecular now that, that, that it, it, to believe that anything came together by chance is the probabilities are astronomically impossible, but they didn't know there were all those different options. But just you just think of all of the components. Take your respiratory system and the kind of material that developed into your lungs. And then you think about how many cells are in your lungs. And they're not all the same. They all have different different jobs that they do. Who, who programmed all those, all the information into those different kinds of cells? So that when you breathe in air, which is made up of oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide and a bunch of other gases, it's just perfect for our lungs. Oh, that just happened by chance. And, and the, our lungs know exactly what to do with that air and how to, uh, convey that into the bloodstream so that all of the cells in our body receive the oxygen that they need to go on living. And to think about that, it's, it, it just happened by accident. And, and not only do you have that system, but, but that, just that one system is made up probably of thousands of systems. And each one of those systems is comprised of, of thousands of subsystems and they all have to come together in the perfect way at the same time for any of it to be a value how in the world can you think that that a one little part of it evolved over 10,000 years and then another little component well if it if it doesn't have all of the components working together at the same time it's just a blind eye it's not any good. You gotta have the, the, the nerves and everything else. So it's just, just remarkable to understand that this demanded a creator with a mind and a power that is beyond anything that we can imagine. So we were studying about the creation. We learned three basic things that there's a distinction between the creator and the creature. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We can learn things about him, but we can never fully comprehend him. He is far beyond anything that we can imagine. Then we looked at the divine institutions. Now, what are the divine institutions? The first divine institution, well, we'll get to that in the review in just a minute. So, And then we have the uh, creation of the spirit beings, the angels and the fall of Lucifer, as he's referred to by a just about literal translation of the shining star uh, in the notes. So the focus on lesson one was on God's creation and the divine institutions. Lesson two focused on wrong views of creation, where they came from, and what this pagan worldview looks like today in terms of just some basic things about, uh, about evolution. And third, lesson three today is going to look at what happened at the world and then the divine institutions as a result of the fall. So things we should remember. First of all, this is foundational, the creator-creature distinction. Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways. Notice that shift. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways. He, he doesn't do things the way we think they should be done. We're very different. As far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The creator-creature distinction, the creature cannot become the creator. The cre- creature cannot take God's place. The creature cannot even come close. And yet that was the focal point of the temptation in the garden. We learned that God is the infinite personal creator God. Infinite applies to all of his attributes. He has infinite knowledge. He has infinite power. He has infinite presence. Uh, He is everywhere present to his creation. And he created everything out of nothing. Somebody may say, well, he created man out of the dust of the ground. Well, where did he get the dust of the ground? He created that out of nothing. So it was nothing. There wasn't even space. There wasn't even empty space. There was just nothing. We can't conceive of nothing. And then God spoke, and the the space-time continuum was created. He didn't create the stars and the the sun and the moon until later, but he created just this this space-time continuum. just... God is the the creator and then he created the first humans Adam and Eve in his image they are distinct from the angels even though angels have have intellect and angels have all kinds of different powers they are were not created to rule the planet they were created to serve God man was created to rule the planet that is the core i believe of the image and likeness of God so God created as part of man's physical nature Specific social absolutes called what? Did you, did you, Catherine? Divine institutions? Right, very good. Okay, and what are they? Responsible choice. choice. Very good. And the second one is marriage. Don't be so shy. And the third one is Family, good. I have always thought understanding the divine institutions is critical to understanding history, to understanding causation in history, and, and many, many other vital things. Foundational to understand law. Sixth, we looked at things that shape a biblical worldview. First of all, the creator-creature distinction is foundational. What is the ultimate reality? That's the creator who is distinct. He is not the same as his creation. We saw in the pagan worldview, there's always something that's there, and it just sort of burps out these gods and goddesses and planets or gases or whatever, but there's always just this uh, um, uh, formless something. So in the creator-creature distinction, there's one God. He is totally different from man. Man is totally different from the animals and the rest of creation. We're not on a sliding scale. Uh, you and I were taught that man were the highest form of animals, and that was a bull-faced lie. We're not animals at all. There's nothing about us that is connected to the animals. Second, there is a personal infinite sovereign God uh, the gods and goddesses that people come up with and invent are either infinite, which means they're so far out there nobody can, can, there's no personal relationship whatsoever, or they are so personal they have all the flaws and failures and sins of every human being and they're not infinite. So that, the Bible teaches a personal infinite sovereign God and that he is the ultimate authority. In terms of his ultimate authority, it is Yahweh God alone who is the ultimate authority, and it is Yahweh God who determines right and wrong. The creature does not determine what right and wrong uh, is, and Yahweh God created human beings in a specific way. That it, The more I think about this, the more I realize that there's nothing about anything physical in our planet that was accidental, that God created everything down to the smallest minute particle to the to the largest uh, galaxy. Everything is created with a purpose. We may not understand what it is, but everything has a purpose and a significance, and it all interconnects and intersects. And so everything about us is the way it is because God has a plan or a purpose. Most of you are probably old enough to remember when uh, the medical profession said, you don't need your tonsils and you don't need your appendix, you can just take them out. And so a lot of you don't have either. And uh, then later they discovered, about 30 years later, they discovered, oh, these are vital for building and developing and maintaining your immune system as well as many, many other functions. So uh, science is not always right So we have this uh, creator creature distinction, but it is Lucifer, the shining star, who wanted to slide up the scale and be God. His attack plan was, uh, as he approached Eve, was to simply refer to God as Elohim, a way of diminishing God, because the other angels are often called Elohims in the Scripture. And so he's trying to lower God down to the level. He's just another angel. And so you you can be like him. You can slide up the scale and be God. Uh, in the pagan worldview, there's, uh, for eternity, there's this chaos and chance. Every chaos and chance rules everything. And third, in his appeal to Eve, he made her think she was in a position that she knew enough to be able to decide whether God's claim that if you ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was true or if Lucifer's, or the serpent's claim was true that no, you're not going to die. So when she falls for that and doesn't say, now wait a minute, I'm going to go check with Yahweh. He's going to be here in a little bit and I'm going to see what he says about that. Uh, and she immediately falls into his trap and looks at the fruit and makes a decision on her own finite, finite knowledge. So we have the beginning of the pagan worldview from the Garden of Eden. And in contrast to a creator-creature distinction, you have the continuity of being where man can slide uh, up and down the scale of of being. Uh, Second, it's the universe, instead of being ruled by a personal sovereign God, is ruled by impersonal fate and chance. And the ultimate authority in the biblical worldview is God, and there is no authority except the individual self on the pagan side. And now the self is so glorified that we're that the cultures are fragmenting, fragmenting, because when everybody's an equal authority, the only the only thing that can bring order is is power, and power becomes the great uh, the the great attraction is who can control the masses. So Satan tricked Eve into thinking she had ultimate authority over her own life. Not God, and so self became, uh, became important. So Satan was promising Eve she could be like God and could just slide up the scale from creature, uh, to creator. So the pagan worldview always suggests man can move up the scale to be God, and we see that in, uh, evolution. So, uh, Satan, the shining star, wanted to promote himself to be God, and he failed and came under divine judgment. And then uh, the shining star enticed and deceived mankind that they too could be God. So we saw that this pagan worldview came from Satan, and he deceived Eve and uh, planted the idea in her thinking, and then after she fell for it, she enticed her husband. So what the pagan worldview looks like today is a continuity of being and evolution. It is not science. We saw that science follows a process of hypothesis where you say, I think this may explain what I'm seeing. And then there are various uh, controlled experiments so that you can repeat the circumstances and observe uh, what is going on. And then if it holds true in numerous uh, circumstances performed and experiments performed by uh, different people in different places, then you can draw a firm conclusion. And if you can't, then you reject it. If it's not observable, if it's not repeatable, it's not science. But everybody thinks evolution is science, but no one has ever observed it. No one can test it. No one can repeat it in a laboratory. Uh, third, the use of scientific names only disguises the fact that nobody knows what they're talking about. And evolution doesn't follow the scientific method at all. It is fake science. But now we live in a world where the people who hold to truth have fake truth. People who hold to, to uh, true science or fake science. So we're, we're going to expect more of that kind of resistance, and hostility. So evolution claims that life differs only in degrees. So there's just a little bit of difference between you and a monkey and between the monkey and an amoeba and between an amoeba and a rock. We're all just basically form, more advanced forms of the same thing. We looked at what makes up a worldview. Uh, it answers the ultimate question of what's there. Is it ultimately a personal, infinite God, or is it the continuity of being? It answers the question of who are we as human beings? Are we in the image and likeness of God, responsible to the Creator for what we do? Or are we our own person, answerable to no one? Uh, What is truth? How do we know truth? How do we come to know truth? And uh, we look to our Creator as believers, that God has revealed truth to us, and so, therefore, we can know truth absolutely. But uh, according to the pagan worldview, you can't know truth. Everybody has their own opinion, which is, since everybody's their own God, uh, it's all godlike. And so the purpose of life is defined by God for the believer. The purpose of everything is defined by God for the believer. But in the pagan worldview, everybody just generates their own meaning, whatever makes them feel good today. It all boils down to emotion. Now, God's Word, the Bible tells us, number one, that God is a person. He's capable of thought. He is has reason. He has relationships, and He makes real choices. Second, God controls everything ultimately, but He also chooses to give human beings and angels limited choices. Third, we uh, then we have a passage, First Corinthians 29, 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is heaven in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Now that's our review. Now this chart I'm doing every week, at least till we get through lesson eight, because the uh, Amos and Jen have not gone any further than eight lessons for the, ch- on the children's side. So I'm trying to go through this to give you as parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers some ideas about how to present some of this material because we all know that, that children at a younger ages have difficulty grasping certain abstract concepts until they reach, reach a certain age. And so they made some differences. For example, in the interlock series, which is written for 15 and older, um, you have the discussion, more discussion on the worldview and the contrast between the pagan worldview and the biblical worldview uh, related to evil. That is a big part of this chapter. The children's edition doesn't talk about the worldview side as much, but it focuses on the bad results of the fall. What are the consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience? And that is really setting the stage for better understanding of the gospel and the importance of salvation. That is also discussed on the, in the interlock series, which interesting is, for example, on this side, death of a friendship only focuses on Genesis 3-8, but on the other side you go through a lot of other verses, which I thought was interesting. So they really had the kids more into reading the scriptures out loud and understanding what the Bible, uh, what the Bible says. So the point here is first of all to understand that the pagan worldview, uh, can't answer the problem of evil. And I've pointed this out many, many times that when you're talking to somebody and they say, well, I just don't understand how a good God and a God who is loving can let all these horrible things happen in, in the world. You know, how can he let evil take place? And too often we rush to try to answer that and And maybe we need to practice what Jesus did become a little more christ like in how we handle these things, and instead of just jumping in there to answer them, just say, "Well, first of all I, I want to understand what you what you mean by evil, and where did you get your idea of evil because evil implies right and wrong? I remember as you do back in two thousand and one and after nine eleven uh, President Bush came out and talked about the perpetrators as evildoers. The left went ballistic. I'm convinced that the left hated George W. Bush because he bought into absolute right and absolute wrong by using that term at that time. And somebody got to him because within a couple of days, he kind of backed off on his connect- connecting that to Islam. But... Um, but there 's real evil out there, but on a pa- basis of a pagan worldview we 're going to see in a few minutes that there 's no explanation for evil. evil is in a pagan worldview is normal, not only is it normal without evil, without death, without pain, without suffering, without the struggle for existence you can 't have evolution, which is their their uh, main reason of explaining how everything got here so it 's a real problem for for them. So in a biblical worldview, evil is bounded by God. It had a beginning, it's going to have an end, and then he's going to restrict it off into a prison called the Lake of Fire and isolate that away from everything else uh, in the creation. So this is is the key. And then um, in the We'll get to part of, uh, most of this, I think, talk, today talking about the consequences, uh, the consequences of death. So, what we see here as we go forward is that we need to talk a little bit more, explain a little bit more about the immaterial part of man and the material part of man, uh, sort of correcting what is in, Uh, in the curriculum as it's written now. I know that's going to be changed. So what we see in the pagan view of evil is that the gods and goddesses sin. I mean, just think about it. If you've read through any kind of, of mythology, you know that the gods and goddesses, whether the Roman gods and goddesses or the Nor, and you know, you have the uh, Viking, the Scandinavian gods and goddesses, and they're all over Marvel Comics and everything now and yet they sin. They have all kinds of human flaws and failings. Uh, you, you go through any system of religion, whether the, you're talking about the gods and goddesses in India or in Peru or among the Aztecs or uh, among the ancient Babylonians or Persians, they all have flaws and failings. They all sin. Now, where did they come from? They came out of some primordial chaos that you just go back far enough in the history of the universe, there was something there and uh, they, they, in the mythology, they don't really define what it is. It was just chaos. And then out of this chaos sort of spins out these gods and goddesses. And then they have all these problems and they'll get in wars with one another and then one of them will kill another one and slice the other one up and out of those body parts they make the planets and the sun and the moon. And then uh, then they will maybe take the blood and mix it with the dirt and make human beings. They have all kinds of different stories about this. But what you have is that there's there's evil in that. And so they conduct themselves in an evil way. So the second point is that since they sin, evil has always been there. In pagan worldview, ancient pagan worldview, sin and evil are always there. It never, it's part of the chaos. So under the third point, sin, evil, injustice of all kinds, social injustice, legal injustice, whatever it may be, economic injustice, inequity, unfairness, all of that is normal if you start with a pagan starting point. And it can never be removed because it is inherent to the nature of their ultimate reality. And when it comes to the modern view of evolution, death is what advances evolution. You've heard the phrase, the struggle of the fittest. So you have these various life forms that develop, and it's a struggle to survive. And if the, the weak ones die, and then the ones who've had the so-called positive mutations, then they will survive and be passed on to their descendants. Of course, nobody's ever witnessed that. Nobody's ever seen it actually happen. And nobody can do anything except create a nice science fiction about it. So death advances evolution. That means if, peop, if things don't die, evolution can't happen. So death is normal. Death is to be desired. Suffering is to be desired. Uh, that's the only way you can advance to the next stage. There has to be it, all these problems of sin and suffering and social injustice and everything else. So the question is, when you're having conversations with people, and they'll never go like you think it should go, but the issue is, so, so if... If evil is real, it, it, they, first of all, you ask them, how do you explain the origin of evil? Where do you get the concept of right and wrong or good and evil? Where, where do you get that if, if there's no God and if everything just happens by chance? Where, where does morality come from? Where does right and wrong come from? How do you define evil if death and sin and suffering are the basic tools you need to advance civilization? And just let them chew on that for, for a while. Survival of the fittest is cruel. So they don't have an explanation for where evil comes from. So as a Christian, Christians shouldn't answer the question. They should just say, okay, before you, we try to answer the question, you need to define your terms and where you get the concepts. And what you're doing is you're borrowing absolutes from a Judeo-Christian worldview, and I'm not going to let you do that. You're out of bounds. So the pagan view is this. Good and evil exist for eternity past. Good and evil exist into eternity future, and nothing changes. In contrast, the Christian view says that evil had a beginning, that God has existed forever and ever. He is eternally and infinitely righteous and just, and he is immutable. He never changes so that righteousness is eternal and everlasting in the character of God. That is our source of understanding what right is and what wrong is. And then people say, well, what, you, what kind of God is it that, that would, um, that would kill, have all the Canaanites killed? And they think they've they just asked you a gotcha question. And, and then you have to respond to that, and you respond to it with a, another, another question. And that is so, um, if you don't believe the Bible, how do you know that that ever happened? You know, we have to think more, think more strategically in what what is going on. So, in a biblical worldview, at the upper level, at the level of the Creator, good is eternal, Righteousness is eternal, which would be a better term than good. Righteousness is eternal. And at the second level in creation, you have righteousness ruling until the fall. And then you have the coexistence of both good, relative good, you also have righteousness, and evil. Righteousness before the fall, when God created Adam and Eve in a, and he created a, a perfect environment in the sense that everything functioned as God intended it to function, there were no problems. And that was normal. The moment Eve's teeth hit the fruit, we went to abnormal. Abnormal there's nothing normal about human existence since that instant. Death is not normal. Death is abnormal i 've said this at funerals for forty years. When you grieve, that is something God put in set up in our emotional makeup because what what you say when you're and what you think when somebody close to you that you love and you love dearly dies. You say, this isn't right. Of course it's not right. God wanted to, re- wanted to remind everyone that no, death is not right. It is not normal. It shouldn't be there. Why is it there? It's, it's a learning situation. So now we live in this time period between the fall and the great white throne judgment when good and evil exist and it's all abnormal. And then after that, God will separate out that which is righteous to heaven and that which is evil is confined to the lake of fire, restricted and that set off. We read in Revelation 21, 1 through 3, John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. That's the one we're in now. The first heaven and first earth. Are actually the old heaven and old earth, had passed away, and there were no more seas. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The word tabernacle means dwelling. The dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people God himself will be with them and be their god. I want you to notice that there's going to be a new heaven and new earth and that in the new heaven and new earth there won't be a salt sea. Now think about that. Well that has implications for understanding some things in Genesis 1. Because you have a a a mirrored reflection between the two, because we're going to learn also in that section that, that God is going to, uh, there's not going to be any light, there's not going to be any sun and moon in the new heaven and new earth, that God himself is going to illuminate everything with his glory. So how are they going to tell time? That's my question. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. See, all that is associated with sin and evil is gone. Then he who sat on the throne, which is always God the Father in Revelation, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. That is a great passage for the freeness of God's grace. Then at the end of the chapter we read, But I saw no temple in it, For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. That's just phenomenal to understand that and think about that because what happens is because of Lucifer's sin at the beginning, And then God renovates the earth and the universe and puts man in it. And then man sins. Nothing since then has been normal. And everything that is happening throughout human history has to do with dealing with the results of that original angelic sin and then restoring the universe back to what it was at the very beginning So there's no sin, and God is dwelling with man. He created man for fellowship. Not that he needed it, because he has an eternal fellowship in the Trinity. He's not like Allah, who's just out there all by himself, alone, forever and ever, and uh, desperately needs something in order to be somebody. Verse 25, its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. It's going to be kind of like living way up north in the North Pole during, uh, during the, um, summer. You've just got sunlight 24-7. Uh, but there shall be by, uh, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so we see that God is going to restrict um, restrict everything. And then um, uh, at the end, by the way, at the end of the interlock series, in the last five lessons, they go through the whole um, uh, book of Revelation. So we'll get there eventually. So we see that the old heaven and old earth, that's this one is replaced by a new heaven and new earth. And then God is going to dwell uh, with his people. And evil will be, and all of its consequences will be removed. But how does God solve the problem of evil? How does he solve the problem of sin? Well, that takes us to the next section, which deals with the promised Savior. And after you have the, the disobedience of Eve and then Adam, and then God outlines the consequences of their sin... In the midst of that, God is going to give them hope. And this comes as he's speaking to the serpent. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals. So he's speaking to the serpent on the one hand, but he's also going to be speaking to Satan behind. This happens several times in Scripture. It it happens when when, uh, Peter is coming up and telling uh, the Lord that, oh no, 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 you're not gonna get killed in Jerusalem. And d- Jesus turned around and looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. He knows that Satan is, has been the one influencing Peter to think that way. And so he addresses Satan through, uh, the human being. Just like in Isaiah, uh, chapter 14, he addresses Satan through the king of Babylon. He's the power behind the king. Just as, uh, entire in Ezekiel 28, Uh, God addresses Satan, uh, who's the power behind the um, the king of Tyre. So he says to the serpent that there's going to be a physical consequence. We don't know how the uh, serpent moved around prior to this point. No idea. But God instantly changed his morphology so that he would be crawling along on his belly and eating dust Genesis three fifteen, he says, "I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring." I really like the word "seed" much, much better because that's the literal meaning of the word in in the Hebrew, and that gets you the idea of the seed of the woman is a male, and that that it's uh, messianic prophecy. So it's not just general offspring. Um, anyway, uh, I'll cause so still between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And it's interesting that when, when it's translated, um, you brood of, of vipers, when uh, John the Baptist is talking to the Pharisees and Jesus also uses the same term. Literally, it's you seed of serpents. So it just connects right back to this, that they are in in the doing the devil's work. Between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head. That's a fatal wound. And like many of you, I was always taught that this will strike you on the heels, not a fatal wound, but it is a fatal wound if this is a viper. It doesn't matter where a cobra strikes you, you're going to die in about 15 or 20 seconds. And Jesus died, but he... What? He rose again. That's right. It's hard to keep a good man down, isn't it? All right. So we have this contrast between Satan and the Savior in Genesis 3. Satan uses the serpent as his disguise. God curses the serpent for allowing Satan to use it in this manner. On the other hand, there's the promised Savior that the woman's seed. The woman's, and it's really odd. Women don't have a seed. The, the Greek is sperma. The women don't have that. Women have ovum, they have an egg. So the, the use of, of sperma here in the cetrogen really, the seed is just, why is that? It is a hint of the virgin birth. From the very beginning, that's why this is called the first gospel, first mention of the gospel, proto-evangelium. So no mention of a father born only of a woman. So Satan, God says Satan and his followers will be at war with the promised Savior and those who are allied with him. And the woman's offspring will be at war with Satan, but that the seed of the woman will destroy Satan. Satan will receive a head wound, which is fatal, which will destroy him. But the promised Savior will receive a wound on a heel. He will die, but he will rise from the dead. So we have progressive revelation here. This is the first explanation of the gospel. Now, this is a big term that's important to learn, that God doesn't just uh, act like the farmer who was out always taking a load of hay out for his cattle, and then one time time he only had two cattle that came in, and so he took the whole load out there and dumped it there for the two two cows. Uh, God gives us a little here, a little more there, a little more later on, and so there's progress in Revelation. So they know a whole lot more about this promise of the seed of the woman by the time you get to the end of Genesis than the beginning and you have to follow the genealogies. That's what they're there for. You end up learning that the seed is going to go through Noah, because the whole human race goes through Noah, and then it's going to go through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then the tribe of Judah. So it just narrows the scope as you go through. So that's the progress of Revelation. God's continually adding to it until he gets to the end of Revelation. He says, now you've got all all you need study it and figure it out and I'll help. So, we come to the first question here which is what happened to the perfect world after the fall. So, there are three things that are impacted by the fall. There is mankind, human beings are become corrupt, we become spiritually dead. And then creation itself is going to be a groaning under the curse and under judgment and then the third is the divine institutions are going to come under attack so we'll probably just get through the first part tonight and hold off on the latter later on so what happens to mankind what happens to Adam and Eve the instant they disobeyed God well prior to sin man was composed of three parts he has a physical body He has a soul which is comprised of his mentality and his conscience and his uh, self-consciousness and his volition. And then he had a human spirit. And the way I express this is the human spirit is that immaterial part that fit over those four parts of the soul like a glove, And while the, the four parts of the soul are connected to the glove, then a human being has, is God conscious, understands God, can understand the things of God, can have a relationship with God, and his intellect and his will and his conscience and his self-consciousness all work the way they were supposed to. But when Eve and Adam ate the fruit, the human spirit died. It either became inoperable with them or something, but it's no longer functional. And we call that spiritual death because the result of it is that without the human spirit, the soul could no longer connect with God. And that is spiritual death, so that man has a body and a soul. And as a result of that, he is separated from God the legal penalty for sin was spiritual death in the instant at the moment you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die you will definitely die it's a very strong statement in the in the hebrew and so then you get to uh genesis 3:17 and there's other consequences for for the creation and god says to adam uh, because you've heeded the voice of your wife, and uh, that's not a statement that listening to your wife is a universal sin. Uh, Abraham gets in trouble for listening to his wife at one point, and then he gets in trouble later for not listening to his wife. So the issue is not the issue of listening to your wife. It's what she's saying. Sometimes she's saying a lot of things you need to listen to. So uh, you heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, "You shall not eat of it." Now cursed is the ground for your sake. So the the ground, the the physical earth, is now under judgment, and that's going to impact. Before you you worked, you took care of the garden, and there were no problems. But now in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Prior to sin, there were no thorns and thistles. There were no weeds. Now, I don't know about some of you, but if you've been trying to grow a vegetable garden in Texas during this this hot summer, then you probably just have a huge weed bed out there because it's been too hot for you to go out and work the soil. Uh, otherwise, you'll have a heat stroke. So all you've got is weeds that come up to your shoulders because we have had enough rain to keep the thorns, and thistles growing. And then uh, 319, in the sweat of your face and every other pore in your body this summer in Texas, uh, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. For to dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's the first mention of physical death. So the Bible talks about death in several ways. Three of them are the death of friendship, the death of that spiritual relationship with God who came and walked in the garden and taught them and talked with them every day. Second, now there's the death of the body. And third, the eternal death called the second death in the Bible, which is the lake of fire. Now you remember that when God made Adam, he made him from the from the soil. He made the soil a certain way so that it would have the necessary components so that when he started pulling it together, he could make a human body out of it. And most people just think that the dirt was already there. No, it, it's like that my favorite creation joke is when some scientists developed the ability to make create life in the lab. And he said, we don't need God anymore. We can create life in the lab. So he challenged God to a contest. And and uh, God said, okay, well, since you challenged me to the contest, I'm going to let you go first so you create life. And so the scientists reached down to get some dirt, and God said, no, 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 no. You have to make the dirt first from nothing. So we have... Uh, We have God who creates Adam intentionally from the dust, the dirt, the soil, and God intended for man to live forever. There's one of the tree. The other known tree in the garden is a tree of of life. So he intended for man to live forever. Death was not present. Death was not part of it. But because of their sin, God said that you're going to return to the dust of the ground um genesis two seven he formed man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed the breath of life him so it 's a clear distinction between the immaterial and material part of man, and the material part can 't function without the immaterial part, so that is when when the human spirit is no longer functional or it 's absent, then that happened instantly that 's the legal pen- penalty from the Supreme Court of Heaven, and so there's a separation between man and God, and it's evidenced right away because as the afternoon went went on and the cool evening breezes came, uh, the man that should not the a shouldn't be there, um, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from God. And then God says, "Well, where are you?" And they said, "Well, we heard you coming, and we were afraid. There was no fear before that, and they didn't had no reason to, to hide from God." Now, what had happened is they failed to recognize the creator-creature distinction, and they were treating Yahweh's words and His commands as if they had equal significance to Satan's words, and they were lowering God to the level of the creature and thinking they had the authority and the ability to to uh, decide which was right. Now, Ephesians 2, 1 tells us, Paul writes, And you he made alive. Now, is that alive physical or spiritual? We have to look at the context. Because he's talking to them, and he's talking to them, obviously they're physically alive, so he's not talking about physical death there you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, not dead physically. So Ephesians 2.1 makes it very clear that the death that he's talking about in Ephesians 2.1 is a spiritual death, and that's further defined in Ephesians 4.18 as being alienated from the life of God. So what happened is uh, it, it's as if you're you're enjoying a nice afternoon, you've got enough cool air, you've got the fan going, and then the power goes out. The fan still goes for a little while, but the source of life for that fan is gone. And so eventually it's going to die. Another illustration is flowers. You have beautiful flowers, and you cut some, and they're going to look beautiful for a while, but eventually they're just going to wither up and die. And what happened at the instant of of, uh, Eve's sin and then Adam's sin is the human race died spiritually. And we just think we're alive, but we're not. Every human being just has the appearance of life. And John 1.4 tells us that in Christ, in the Logos, was life, and the life was the light of men. So spiritual death is the loss of the human spirit, so the soul cannot understand what God has revealed or relate to God. That's what uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural or the soulish man that doesn't have spirit. The soulish man does not understand the things of God. You trace that phrase, things of God, back to verse 9. It's what God has revealed in his word. So the soulish man can't understand God's revelation and he doesn't know how to relate to God because he's spiritually dead. But at regeneration, at that instant of belief, God creates and simultaneously imparts a human spirit into that spiritually dead person, making them alive. So that Paul writes in Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, he made us alive together in him. That's regeneration. That's new life. So the second form of death is the death of the physical body, which comes as a result of spiritual death and separation from God. Man's At physical death, man's immaterial part is separated from his physical body. So if you're an unbeliever and you're spiritually dead, your soul is separated from your body, and it goes uh, to uh, a holding place, uh, called torments. And if you are a believer, you've been regenerated, so your immaterial part is composed of a soul, human soul and spirit, and that goes into the presence of the Lord with some sort of, I believe, interim body. But physical death is first designated in Genesis 3.19, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, the third death is the second death. It's eternity in the lake of fire. In Matthew 25, 41 and 46, now this has to do with the sheep and the goat judgments. But in the process of that, Christ says he separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep are always on the right. Just remember that. The sheep are on the right It's the goats that are always on the left. So always remember that. That's really the origin of right and left. Um, So then he will also say to those on the left hand, the goats, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, there's a lot of debate, is God really going to send unbelievers and the angels and Satan to eternity forever and ever and ever and ever and ever to have conscious torments and burning pain? Well, yes. That's what the language suggests. Two, Three verses later, or, or five verses later, he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment. And the word there is ionon but the righteous into eternal life. Same word. So if we're going to say we get eternal life forever and ever and ever and ever with God, you've got to apply the same definition in the same context to the death. You can't avoid that. Then when we get to Revelation 20, verse 10, we read, the devil who deceived them. Now remember here, lake of fire wasn't created for mankind. It was created for Satan and his angels. But because man shifted loyalties when Eve ate the fruit and Adam ate the fruit, then they go to the lake of fire. They get the same judgment. Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They're sent there straight from Armageddon. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's the same word, Ionon. Ionion. Revelation 20:14. then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we see that it's eternal. No one leaves the lake of fire. It was prepared for the devil and his angels and people will be separated from God's presence forever and ever. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his angels. That's talking about believers. The Lord Jesus is revealed in flaming fire, taking vengeance. And vengeance isn't a personal vendetta in the Scripture. The word really means to have a, to, to um, uh, enact justice. Uh, to um, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a command: believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Obeying it is to simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. It's the same word, Ionion, that's over there in Matthew twenty-five forty-one and in Revelation twenty. It's difficult. It's hard. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So at the end of time, after the great white throne judgment, evil is restricted and confined to eternal punishment. So what happens in salvation is that God will restore a physical body, I mean, restores, excuse me, human spirit, so that man is once again as he was created. I lost the soul, the soul over on this other side. It's kind of like when I went hiking up in the Appalachians a couple of weeks ago. I lost the soul of my right shoe, and then I lost my other soul. So it, I was soulless. First Thessalonians 5.23 tells us that there's three parts. Now, there's a lot of confusion over this. You'll read a lot of theologians. I love Dr. Ryrie. But he said, no, they're just an immaterial part and a material part, and all these different terms are synonymous. Well, no, they're not. Because in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved. Clearly, in some passages, there's a clear distinction between those three elements. And the Word of God is so perspicuous that it can discern between the soul and the spirit. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and he can it can just slice the difference. So in those two passages, it's clear that they're not the same, and they can't be understood to be synonymous concepts. This is why when you talk about fallen man, the, his basic problem is he's separated from God, number one, and he has a sin nature. And that means he is mentally abnormal, he is spiritually abnormal, he is uh emotionally abnormal, and he's physically abnormal. We're just a bunch of abnormals, if you remember young Frankenstein. Okay. So it's corruption, it's a sin nature. That's the problem. And we came along in the in the nineteenth century with Freud. Freud hated Christianity. And he wanted; he got rid of, of sin. And everybody can do whatever they want to do because we're all basically good. Romans 3.10 says, There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is... Um, is that, no, it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. So, man on, uh, sinless man's choice was to live dependent on the Creator God. Fallen man's choice is to either turn around, which is what the meaning of repent means, uh, and to live de- dependently upon God or to continue his way as being independent. And sinless man's conscience, for the believer, our anchor is the word of God, we know absolute right and wrong. But fallen man's conscience is focused on himself, and he accuses others, basically, of what he does himself. At the end of Romans 1, and the first verse of Romans to another place where the chapter is in a wrong divisions in a wrong place, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, this is talking about the Gentiles, all the nations outside of Israel, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. See, they know it. God has built this sense of right and wrong in their soul, in their conscience. They're constantly suppressing that truth. Uh, Those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We're seeing that left and right now. Uh, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you are practicing the same things. So the problem is this. For all fallen mankind is headed towards the lake of fire. Man's solution is what? Shopping. Shopping. Let's get a thrill and go spend money. makes us feel better about ourselves. Or education. We're going to get educated so that we can do better in life and have more things and have more money and the things that money can buy or have a better career. Or supplements. Supplements like Jim Beam. Supplements like marijuana. Supplements like whatever it is that you turn to to try to deaden the pain of a fallen, corrupt world or self-help books, in other words, human psychology. Man has false solutions, but God gives the only solution, and that's Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, and the only solution is for us to trust in him and turn back to God. All right, so that wraps up the first half of this lesson three. Next time we're going to see how sin impacted the divine institutions and if you want a hint just read current events and you will see that every divine institution is constantly under assault today by the uh, cultural leaders and the elitist of the world and you would have ever thought that it would get to be like it is today let's pray father we're thankful that we have hope we have hope because you are in control you have Uh, allowed man the freedom to reject you, to disobey you, and to rebel against you. But we know that when all is said and done, that your righteous judgment will prevail. And when we are with you at that time, we will not even remember what is going on today. It will all be separated from us, and we will only know the beautiful, perfect joy of being with you and serving you in heaven and on the new heavens and new earth. So, Father, we thank you for this, that our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope is in his death on the cross, and our hope is in the uh, truth of your word, and that that brings us stability and joy even in the midst of whatever difficulties there are that we face. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.